From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The House Committee on Oversight and Reform has added more than $3 billion for federal IT modernization efforts to the House Reconciliation Package. The spending includes $1 billion for the Technology Modernization Fund and $2 billion for the Federal Citizen Services Fund. That supports new ways for how agencies engage with the public. President Biden has named Tristan Levitt to fill the third and final vacancy at the Merit Systems Protection Board. Levitt has served as the board's general counsel and its chair ever since the board lost its only Senate-confirmed board member in early 2019. MSPB has not had a quorum since January 2017. The Marine Corps has suspended waterborne operations for its new amphibious combat vehicles after it found a problem with the vehicle's sea tow quick release mechanism. The suspension was made, quote, out of an abundance of caution, according to a statement. The suspension affects all 54 amphibious vehicles in the field. The first ACVs were put into action late last year. The FCC is the federal agency responsible for America's communications law and regulations. When space on the electromagnetic spectrum is available, the FCC runs competitive auctions to determine which companies can operate in that spectrum. These auctions have brought in over $200 billion in revenue for the federal government. That's in large part thanks to Evan Quirrell, who established the first ever competitive auctions to allocate public airwaves. He is senior economic advisor for the Office of Economics and Ana Analytics at the FCC. He's a finalist for the Paul Volcker Career Achievement Award. Evan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Give us a real quick tutorial about Spectrum, what it is, and how it's used. Spectrum is what makes this, whoops, your, your smartphone um, able to communicate um, wirelessly. With, without Spectrum, your smartphone would, would be able to do everything it does, except it would have to be connected to a wire, just like your computer. But because of Spectrum, which are radio waves that connects it to um, either Wi-Fi or to a cell tower, you can walk around with it, drive in your car with it, go in your house with it, um, and, and have all these wireless communications. And, now, and Spectrum, and, and sorry, and that spectrum then is kind of owned and run by the federal government. So when you have that space available, how was, before competitive auctions, how was that allocated? Um, not well, but it wasn't as important before we had cell phones. Um, in, in, in the old days, we had what we called comparative hearings, which are um, affectionately known as beauty contests. And by beauty contests, we mean that people would fill out applications explaining why their use of the spectrum was the most beautiful, why, why their use of the spectrum would, um, why they would be the best ones to be awarded the licenses. Um, 
and it was a pretty arbitrary process. Um, really, um, the differences could could depend on somebody claiming to to um, um, serve one small area, which really made no difference. How did you come up with the idea of using an auction system? So, so let me just slow things down, but but quickly. So, so the so Congress in 1982 um, gave the FCC authority to use um, lotteries, and and they used um, these ping pong balls in a in a hot in an air machine, like from the um, World War II draft lottery, and that was also arbitrary and just encouraged people who wanted to flip their licenses. And we had like 400,000 applications for the least valuable cellular um, licenses. So that that was another failure. So, you know, as they say, you know, when everything else fails, do the right thing. Um, so, um, so we, in, in 1993, um, Congress finally um, gave us the authority to run spectrum auctions. And I was involved with the process of, um, of um, lobbying Congress to um, do that. So to answer your question, how did I come up with the idea of spectrum auctions? The short answer is I didn't. Spectrum auctions were not my idea. Um, I'm, and, but I'm proud to say that it was an economist who um, a Nobel Prize winner, Ronald Coase, in 1951, 1959, excuse me, who first suggested spectrum auctions. And to be honest, he was honest too. He actually said in, in, in a later paper that, um, that the idea came to him, not just through his intuition, but from a law student at University of Chicago who wrote a law review article that suggested it for using for um, choosing the color TV standard. So, so the heritage of the idea of spectrum auctions goes way back. I wish I could take credit for it, but I can't. But you were the one that shepherded it through and I got buy-in from leadership. Was that hard? Yes, yes, and um, it was hard. So I really do think I made a difference in making spectrum a reality. And equally important, I think I made a difference in terms of applying cutting edge economics to spectrum design because it's not just a question you know you have an auction or not an auction it's a question of how you do it and how we did it was incredibly innovative and it's my belief that one thing that government needs more of is innovation and the answer is um yeah was it hard okay um it it, it was it was hard in the beginning, um, the Democrats were absolutely opposed um, to auctions. Um, Dingle, who had a big constituency for broadcasters, absolutely opposed it because broadcasters did not want to have anything that was gonna be the um, slippery slope, the camel's nose under the tent towards having any kind of fees on them. But um, in, things changed. Um, when uh, Bill Clinton became president and they were looking to get um, more revenues. And, and we were under a pay as you go. So they needed money 
uh, a new source of money to fund all their ambitious social programs. And as so I mentioned, we're talking two hundred billion dollars since these started. That's that's a lot right. of money. So 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 once once um, the politics changed, it wasn't hard at all to get legislation. But what was hard was to do it what I would consider the right way or or, or, or the, the, the let's, let's say there's no right way, the best way. All right. Um, well, and, and Evan, we're out of time. I, I'd love to talk to you some more about this, but we're out of time. Thanks so much and, and congratulations on your nomination. Coming next, help wanted for senior leadership at federal agencies. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the White House's hiring effort and where it's going from here. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Biden administration is hiring senior agency executives at the fastest rate in decades, at least 319 during the president's first three months in office. Daniel Lippman is a reporter for Politico. He's writing about the hiring trends for senior government staff. Daniel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And nice to see you in, in studio. Yes. <laughs> so the SES, this is the Senior Executive Service. It was created in 1978. Why has, have those ranks been depleted? So during the Trump administration, uh, President Trump attacked what he called the deep state. Uh, and so he was very suspicious of long-term government employees. Uh, he thought they were undermining his agenda, that they weren't loyal to his administration. Uh, and so a lot of people left during his administration uh, and they went into the private sector, they retired early, uh, and Biden thinks that it's very important to revitalize these ranks uh, to try to carry out his agenda as best uh, they can. And, and this, uh, this SES is really there to provide senior leadership that's not political. Yeah. So what are the implications then when, when those ranks are, are depleted? Well, the implications are that government is just less effective. Uh, and remember, this goes back to decades when Newt Gingrich, he wanted to shrink government uh, you know, so that you can kind of like flush it down the, uh, the, the bathtub. And so this is not a new concept for Republicans attacking uh, the civil service and trying to make the government as small as possible. But that has ramifications uh, in terms of uh, people losing faith in their government if they can't uh, reach the IRS to clear up uh, you know, problems with their tax return or get social security payments. Uh, if, you know, I think there's a reason that uh, these government civil servants exist and the SES provides continuity and also leadership experience since these are senior folks. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, you can see tangible benefits when you have uh, an SES that is at the proper size. So what agencies were hardest hit by these senior executives either being cut or leaving on their own? So there are a, a number of uh, agencies. Uh, the Office of Personnel Management uh, was one. Uh, you know, Trump wanted to get rid of it, uh, uh, and he was not successful in that. Uh, and so he basically uh, shifted a bunch of their responsibilities to other agencies like uh, Department of Defense. Uh, you know, other agencies 
the EPA he was not uh, a fan of, and so people uh, left uh, agencies like, like that. And so that, that's where Biden is coming in. Uh, he is trying to figure out where the holes are uh, and patch them up so that he has a career folks who he can go to and say, hey, I want this policy uh, implemented properly. I, want, uh, you know, I don't want it to do a rushed rule. So take the EPA. Uh, if you don't have people who know what's going on, then you will get those uh, rules that you want carried out to clean up the air and you know make climate change a priority. They'll just get struck down in court if you don't follow the proper process. And OPM, I mean, your article says that it's it was 54 percent. Yeah. I mean, that's really significant. It's, it's pretty wild in terms of the senior folks, not in terms of every employee, uh, but the OPM uh, you know folks that were also charged with creating the Schedule uh, F, which was the, uh, you know, trying to kind of get rid of civil servants in the first place in terms of making any policy position mm -hmm. uh, more of a, uh, you know, a political position. Uh, and that was, you know, overturned by Biden. It wasn't really implemented in the first place. So what are we seeing as far as a comparison between the Biden administration's hiring and o Presidents Obama and Trump? So um, President Biden in the first three months hired at least 319 uh, senior executive service folks. And that is up from uh, around 120 uh, in the 120s range for both Obama and Trump for the first three months. So that's a, you know, a pretty big increase. Uh, and, you know, these are mostly, you know, it's, it's hard to say exactly if they're all political versus, uh, you know, people who... Uh, are you know it's a lot of career folks, but you can be designated as an SES for if you're a political. It's kind of just a, a a way to categorize your job, and so these are both career and some political folks. And Daniel, what are we seeing in terms of gender and racial uh, diversity? Because that's been a big priority for President uh, Biden. Yeah, it's um, you know the his efforts to make the government more equitable and more. Um, you know, diverse is bearing out in the data. And so uh, for racial minorities, it's 30%, at least 30% are uh, of SES folks are minorities. In terms of women, uh, it's basically a 50-50 split. And so that is up from, I think it was 16% of minorities uh, during parts of Trump's uh, administration. Uh, and uh, it was much more male heavy uh, for the SES folks under uh, Trump as well. And finally, Daniel, do you think that these new hires are going to have that impact that the president's looking for to push his agenda and his priorities forward? I think the most important thing uh, he has to rely on is Congress actually passing that agenda. So that reconciliation, that $3.5 trillion uh, bill, which might come down uh, a little bit, that's going to be very important. But uh, these are the people that once these bills are passed, uh, they are going to be charged with implementing. So I think it's a pretty significant change. There's a reason that he's doing this. All right. Well, we've run out of time, but thank you so much, thank Daniel, you. for talking to us. Of course. Coming next, the aftermath of the disastrous earthquake in Haiti. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the team leader for USAID's response efforts shares what he's currently seeing on the ground in Port-au-Prince. I'll be right back. When disaster strikes in the United States, like the destruction of Hurricane Ida, FEMA funds and coordinates a response. 
But when disaster strikes overseas, USAID coordinates and delivers American aid. On August 14th, a 7.2 magnitude earthquake and a tropical storm in Haiti left thousands of residents without basic necessities. Tim Callahan is the leader for USAID's disaster assistance response team for the 2021 earthquake in Haiti. It's part of USAID's Bureau for Humanitarian Assistance. He's currently in the field in Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince. Tim, welcome. Good morning. The capital where you are was not directly hit by the earthquake, but what's the situation right now in Haiti? Yeah, so the situation, uh, unlike 2010 when I was here, where the capital was devastated, where buildings fell down and, and there was a lot of need for food and, and so forth, that's not the case in the capital, uh, but it is the case on the southern part of, of Haiti. Uh, when the earthquake hit, um, you know, the priorities for us as coordinating the U.S. government effort was search and rescue in medical evacuations. And we work again as, as the lead federal agency coordinating, we work very closely with the US Coast Guard for the medical evacuations. And now our main focus, so after the search phase has ended, after the medical evacuations have ended, uh, the main focus right now is working with the government's FEMA equivalent called DPC, Civil Protection, to get out aid to hard to hit areas, isolated areas, um, again, based on the priorities that the government has set forth. So the main issues we're focusing on uh, between last week and this week are issues related to shelter, um, food assistance, health assistance, water, sanitation, hygiene. But again, obviously everything connected to logistics um, and, and working together with Department of Defense, U.S. Coast Guard, obviously um, civil protection here and the international community, NGO, non-government organizations in the U.N. Now, uh, Tim, it has been about three weeks. How how are the people doing? Do they have basic necessities? Do they have water? Do they have housing? Yeah, I think the first the first week was difficult, no question about it, and given the security situation. Um, but I think you know last week was so much better in getting items out to folks. Um, today, for example, we're in the process of working with the Department of Defense um, to support a, a very large shipment of food to Jeremy. And uh, recently we've been working with the World Food Program to ensure that food assistance is getting out. We've been, you know, what's happened in the last 10 days or so, so we're a little over, um, yeah, the earthquake was on the 14th. The first week was difficult, just trying to get things organized, work with low, local mayors and communities. But in, in the re past 10 days or so, uh, there's been convoys of trucks. So 137 have been able to get out from uh, Port-au-Prince to Lakai. And then what the, the challenge now we have is what we call last mile distribution. So even if we get it to warehouses in, in the hard hit areas, it's coordinating with security because that's a really important thing. All these convoys that have gone out, it's, you have to have security, the Haitian National Police. Sometimes you'll see some situations where people will surround the truck. Again, groups are well-intentioned, but it, everything has to be coordinated with the government, with security, um, and the NGOs and, and the UN working together, but also at the local level, right? Mayors, community leaders, making sure when we get it there, there's a plan to distribute it quickly. So a lot of material has gotten out and continues to get out. The big push the government asked us was between last week and this week, to reach you know, that blanket of, of immediate assistance uh, to the hardest hit areas. And that's what we're focused on right now with the government. So Tim, talk to me about the logistics a little bit. When a disaster strikes, um, how do you start planning this type of large scale response effort, especially with timing being so critical? Yeah, a lot of it happens actually beforehand. So we have, for example, the search and rescue teams. We have agreements already in place 
uh, for search and rescue worldwide with Fairfax County Fire Department and with Los Angeles County Fire Department. So the exercises, the planning, um, knowing who can go, how quickly they can go. Um, the same thing with the Department of Defense. Um, actually, uh, Colonel Gavitner from um, JTF Bravo, he's based in Honduras. I had actually gone out there a couple of weeks ago for the purpose of getting to know him, talking about how we would work together if something strikes. And then first time that I met him then after that was, you know, here in Haiti. So he's based at Guantanamo, bringing aircraft in. So a lot, Admiral Fowler, he's the lead at Southern Command in Miami. We constantly meet, talk, review plans, and we do that all the time ahead of time. Um, obviously with the government here, we have our, our plans of uh, capacity building, you know, activities with, you know, uh, incident Command System, Urban Search and Rescue. With the government, Dr. Chandler is the FEMA equivalent director here, and we have a strong relationship with him. And AID has a humanitarian office here in Haiti that, again, knows the World Food Program and other partners. Tim, how long will your team be in Haiti? How, how do you know that we're done, it's time to go home? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a great question. Um, we look at it as, as phases. Um, so, you know, right now, obviously, the first week, the phase was the search and rescue phase looking for people who would still be alive under the rubble um, combined with trying to medically evacuate folks from hard to hit areas to get them into uh, medical care and hospitals in the capital the next phase is what we're in right now that's trying to get food water shelter materials that's the big need right now um, it's we're in hurricane season as you know so that, that's the, the phase we're in right now we'll also be putting resources into partners hands so i would say kind of you know for the next you know, couple of weeks we'll be here, but we'll start to pare down as appropriate. Um, but obviously then after, even after we program resources with regarding food and health and shelter, we'll, we'll have a small team here that will continue to monitor because obviously we want to help, but also we have to guard the taxpayer dollars. So we'll be doing field trips and monitoring trips as the activities continue over the next few months. Tim, thanks so much for taking time to join us um, and best of luck to you. Stay safe. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And we want to hear from you. Send us a tweet at govmatters.tv. Share your thoughts and ideas for our program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.